I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season 6, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada, within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. You're probably aware, because how could you not be, that Canada has spent a lot of money during this pandemic. There's the CERB, there's the Temporary Business Wage Subsidy, there's the Business Credit Availability Program, the Canada Emergency Business Account, the Emergency Care Benefit, the Emergency Support Benefit, and lots of others. So yes, big bills, big deficit, big issue, perhaps, for some politicians to complain about. Trudeau and the people around him are living in a fantasy land where they believe they can fund the government by borrowing hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars to fund a bunch of vanity projects that don't help Canadians. The fact that Canada's debt is at historic levels is not a partisan issue. It really is. We owe tons of money. Here's the political question, though. Should we care about that? Should Canada be worried about how it will pay back this money, what it will need to cut, what its citizens will have to do without? Or should the government simply print more money and everything will be fine? See, that's where politics comes in. Politics and an emerging economic theory. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Max Fawcett is a reporter and a writer who dug into this theory for The Walrus. Hello, Max. Hey, Jordan. Why don't you start by uh, just telling me how much money are we spending uh, as a federal government to fight this pandemic and keep the economy uh, at least somewhat afloat? Well, the final numbers are, are yet to kind of be be written in ink, but but certainly the pencil version of them is well over $300 billion, which is basically half of what our national total national debt was coming into this year and, and many, many multiples of any deficit that you or I or, or almost anyone has seen in our lifetimes. So the government has, has said that they expect that to come down next year, uh, but still it will come down to levels that would coming into 2020 have been almost unfathomable. So yes, the government is, is spending an awful lot of money to, to keep the economy uh, moving and keep, keep households afloat. And, you know, so far, I think they've done a pretty good job there. What is the opinion uh, of that spending in Ottawa right now? Uh, obviously, the Liberals believe it's necessary. Um, conservatives going along with it for now. Uh, NDP saying it's not enough. Um, what's the thought on on what we'll have to do with this deficit as soon as we can? Yeah, it's kind of funny how it always breaks on partisan lines. So the, the NDP wants to spend more, the Conservatives want to spend less, and the Liberals are kind of in the middle of those two positions. The, certainly the opinion of prominent conservatives like Pierre Poiliev and, and Aaron O'Toole is that, you know, we need to wind this spending down quickly. We need to pay this, this debt down. We need to ensure that we're not passing it on to future generations, which, sure, that, that's, a, that's a, a reasonable concern. 
But it's also one that's kind of rooted and informed by a view of debt and deficits that that may not be quite valid anymore. This view that government deficits invariably lead to inflation, which leads to higher interest rates, which is bad for the economy. And, and you know, it's important to have government surpluses. That's that's the prudent thing to do. Can and- you explain just a little bit more uh, for those of us who don't uh, want to pay too much attention to monetary theory, how um, how it's felt that deficit leads to inflation and et cetera? Well, it, it, it gets into sort of some fairly wonkish stuff. But, you know, the more government debt that is out there that is outstanding, essentially, you're 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 increasing the money supply, you're, you're increasing the flow of and demand for Canadian dollars, which then, you know, that leads to a pass through inflationary effect which if the government wants to contain it, uh, you know, the, the, the central bank has to raise interest rates, uh, which encourages people to save more money because you're getting a higher interest rate, which then takes money out of the system. There's, we can go a lot deeper into it than that, but that has been the theory. And, and certainly there's, there's lots of evidence that supports it. But over the last, call it 20 years, there's lots of evidence that doesn't support it. So you look at a country like Japan, which has its own currency, um, is, is a developed, robust economy. They, their debt to GDP levels are over 200%, which is much, much higher. You know, we were at, call it 35% at the federal level, give or take, going into the, the, the COVID crisis. And I think right now we're, we're at about 100% if you include provincial debt. So they've had much higher debt for a very long time. They have not had any inflationary problems there. Their currency has remained relatively stable in terms of its its exchange rate value. This is not what what conventional economic theory would have us believe. And, and we've sort of seen a similar thing in the United States as well, where after you know, the, the financial crisis in, in 08, um, you know, the government pumped a bunch of money in and you had Republicans saying, here comes inflation. We're, we're going to have massive inflation any day now. And it never materialized. We, we simply haven't seen that inflation. And so what MMT and, and, and the thinkers behind that want us to do is kind of reassess our story of inflation and our story of what causes it and maybe what doesn't cause it. You mentioned MMT. We haven't explained exactly what that is yet. It's modern monetary theory. Can you uh, tell me how it works, but also uh, where it came from? be tough for me to explain how it works in, in the time that we have allotted here, but I will definitely give it my, my best shot. Um, it, it, it is a different story of inflation. And so you hear this, this comparison made a lot by certain po- politicians and, and, and thinkers uh, between household debt and government debt. And they say, well, governments can't spend beyond their means because neither can households. And that's simply not true because governments aren't households. Governments live much, you know, they, they live on past the people who are, are currently in them. They, they're kind of indefinite. Um, they, can, they can get debt at a much lower rate than households can, and, and they, can, they can borrow in ways that households can't. So it's sort of a faulty comparison. And, and what MMT thinkers say and believe is that, look, a government's never going to go bankrupt. If it, if it can issue its own currency, it will never go bankrupt. And so this, this concern that, that you know, governments have to pay down debt and deficit because they'll become insolvent, they say is simply not true. Now, that doesn't mean that they think that governments can just print money and, and spend wildly. They're, they're as concerned about inflation as, as the next person. Um, but they have a different story of inflation. Um, and it's not that it comes from government deficits. It's that it comes from a whole host of other things. Now, where does this come from? This, this dates back 
you know, before uh, the Second World War in some respects. Um, there's there's this long academic history of of thinking about the way money and and governments and and government finances should work. It kind of was always a, a bit of a niche academic theory, and then. You know, we had this big outburst of inflation in the 1970s throughout the West, the Western world. And I think that kind of, you know, dumped a, a layer of topsoil on top of these ideas. People were less willing to talk about them because inflation back then was very real, very bad, very dangerous. And so anyone coming out and, and suggesting that, you know, governments didn't need to worry about deficits or, or didn't need to worry as much as they did, was kind of going to get laughed out of the room. But, you know, as we've seen the, the correlation between government deficits and inflation break down over the last 25 years in developed economies, it, it, those people have begun to put their heads above the, the trench line again, so to speak. They've, be, you know, they've begun to talk more confidently about their theory of, of money and inflation. And you have someone like Stephanie Kelton, who was a, a senior academic, senior advisor to Bernie Sanders and uh, wrote this, published this, this book this summer that has kind of you know, within academic circles and even beyond it kind of become this phenomenon, we're starting to see more confidence in, in them and, and their willingness to make their arguments. You mentioned at the beginning of that answer that they don't think that you can just print money and print your way out of uh, any problem you encounter. That does sound to a layperson like what this theory is. So where um, where is that limit that you can't you can't print your way out of then? The, the limit is is not kind of a, a fixed ratio or metric. So it's not like once you get to 150% debt to GDP, suddenly things go off the rails. What what they suggest is that we actually look at the data and respond to it accordingly. So if we're not getting any inflation and governments are running deficits, you know, maybe we don't need to worry about inflation just yet. And you know, the real, I don't want to say magic, but the, the interesting thing about MMT is it encourages people to think about all of the deficits that governments are running. So I think traditionally and conventionally, we've 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 kind of put the financial fiscal deficit above all our all all other things, but we also have social deficits. We have infrastructure deficits. We have uh, environmental deficits. And and what MMT proponents would suggest is we need to look at all of those uh, in a sort of more holistic perspective. So if we're balancing the budget off the back of of the creating massive deficits in these other areas. Well, that's not good for for citizens. That's not good for any of us, and so we should be willing, uh, you know, in as much as as the economy allows us to, to to run government deficits in order to address those other ones. Um, they care about inflation, and you know, the belief of the MMT theorists is that one of the ways that you get rid of inflation is by taxes. Taxes effectively reduce demand because they take money out of the system. You have to pay your taxes. You have to pay them in Canadian dollars, so that takes Canadian dollars out of the system. It, it is a, you know, uh, anti-inflationary measure, but but their their view is also that inflation comes from a bunch of other places. It comes from inefficient regulations. It comes from companies and corporations capturing market share and, and behaving in olig oligopolistic ways. There's lots of different sources of inflation, and governments can address those without simply uh, balancing the budget kind of reflexively the way maybe we've we wanted to in the past. You mentioned that uh, economists who who like this kind of thing are kind of sticking their heads up now and that there's a book by uh, one of Bernie Sanders advisors uh, and all of that. 
sounds very much like one side of the political spectrum talking. Uh, what are the arguments against this? Um, not necessarily from the con big C conservative side, but from uh, people who are more conservative about economic theory. Where do they think that this could go wrong or might be dangerous? Yeah, it's interesting when I when I wrote this piece for the Walrus and and you know it was sort of out there in the in the Twitter universe. It it caught a fair bit of heat from from economists and and economists from I would argue across large portions of the the economic spectrum. Uh, you know, certainly not ones on the further left, but from, you know the center out to the right. And their concerns are are, are really the concerns that have been expressed about Stephanie Kelton and her book and her thinking, which is that you know, we're really inviting chaos here. We don't know that this will work. We don't know what will happen if we deploy this on a larger scale. And there is very much a risk that we end up in a situation where, you know, I think most economists are careful not to make a comparison to places like Venezuela or Zimbabwe, but, you know, places where we would get runaway inflation, that inflation is a, is a fire that, you know, yes, you can contain it, but if it gets out of control, it can do a lot of damage and and their argument is that this is this is a dangerous way to to experiment uh you know it hasn't been tested in a lab because can't really do that with with you know major economies and so we just don't know and i think you know the the mmt theorists would say you're right we don't know but we do know that the way we've been doing things over the last call it 30 to 50 years has placed a lot of the burden on working people. It has placed a lot of the burden on um, those who are not uh, in control of large stores of capital. And so I think they would say, yes, it's untested. Yes, there are risks. But we also have to understand that there are risks with the status quo, and we know what those are. So if uh, the federal government or any government uh, running a deficit right now wanted to try it, what would that look like? You know, we're more than three hundred billion in debt. Does the government get up tomorrow and say, you know what, let's do a hundred billion uh, and test it out and go from there? Like, what actually happens? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think some people would argue that it's happening right now. That we're seeing it being effectively tested in real time. Uh, just the government is not going to put words to that effect. I, and I understand why. You know, maybe that maybe that spooks capital markets. Maybe that panics people. You don't want to tell people that you're conducting an experiment because experiments uh, can be risky. But the, the net net of it is that we are running deficits that were previously unimaginable. And much of, those much of that deficit is being financed by the Bank of Canada. Now, the Bank of Canada is independent. It will stay that way as it, as it should. That's the only way that uh, these things really work. But you know, the fact remains that the, you know, there are a lot of the government of Canada's debt is being bought by our central bank, which is kind of what MMT would look like. So I, I think the government will tread carefully here. Uh, I think if you ask them if they were doing MMT, they would categorically deny it. And I don't think that they're explicitly thinking of it that way. I think they're thinking of it in the way that a lot of Canadians would want them to, which is it's more important to, to plug the hole that COVID has blown in our lives and our economy uh, now and figure out how to pay down that money later than it is to sort of stand on the principle of fiscal prudence. You know, the fact remains that the government of Canada right now can borrow basically for free. You know, the cost of, of adding $100 billion in additional debt right now is like, it's you know, $1 to $1.5 billion in interest costs. That is almost laughably low. Whereas if they didn't 
fund things like CERB and and the to keep this the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. It would be businesses and households that would have to borrow that money and plug that gap. And I can promise you that they would be borrowing at a much higher rate. So for now, this is just good, prudent economic behavior. The government is borrowing at a lower rate and then giving that money to the people who need it. In time, we will see the, the deficit wound down. And in time, we'll have that conversation about how we pay down this debt. But what MMT offers us is a different theory on, on how urgently we need to pay it down. So the idea behind it then is not just ignore the debt forever. It's that it doesn't matter as much as we think it does. Exactly, exactly. They, but they are by no means suggesting that we, we, don't, we can just sort of ignore government debt and print money willy-nilly and, and you know, put a unicorn in everyone's garage or, or whatever it might be. They're, they're very sensitive to, to the dangers posed by inflation and, and especially the impact that that can have on, on working and middle-class households. But they are also sensitive to the danger that knee-jerk austerity can have on those same households. And that has kind of been the, the instinct that we've, we've had over the last you know, 20, 30 years. You saw that as soon as we came out of the financial crisis a little over a decade ago, we, you know, especially in the United States, it was straight back to austerity. We want to balance these budgets as quickly as possible. And there's a lot of work out there that suggests that that kneecapped the recovery, that the recovery was not as robust as it could and should have been precisely because we we rushed back to to austerity and trying to balance budgets and guess who that hurt the most it was it was lower and middle class households so certainly they're not blind to the dangers that inflation and 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 massive government financing can can create but they are aware of the other dangers that are out there and i think that's the real value here is that it gives us a different story that we can use to consider these issues I want to ask you a big picture question. The last time you were on this show, you talked about uh, universal basic income. And now uh, we're talking about MMP. And both of those uh, involve, at least at a glance, the idea that, that we shouldn't care so much about how much money government gives away or borrows or, or any of that. And in both cases, you kind of cited that the thinking around this is changing. So what has this pandemic taught us about uh, how we think about money in public policy? I think it's taught us that things are possible that we didn't previously think were possible. And and I think that will reframe our political conversations over the next 10 years that when someone says, well, I, you know, universal basic income, we can't do that. We can't afford that. Well, maybe we can because we've seen uh, that governments very much can afford to do this without, you know, inflation spiraling out of control the way people would have predicted even a year ago. So I think it expands the intellectual landscape in this country and, and the kinds of conversations that we're able to have. Now, what direction do those conversations go in? I guess that that depends on our political leadership and our, and our thought leadership more broadly. But I don't think anyone's going to be able to get away with saying, well, you, you know, you can't do that. That's not possible because COVID has really kind of uh, shown us that almost anything is possible. Nice to take one bright spot uh, away from this hellish year anyway. Thank you, Max. <laughs> happy to Happy to offer it up. Max Fawcett, who looked at modern monetary theory in The Walrus. That was The Big Story. For more from us, thebigstorypodcast.ca is your destination. We had Max on here fairly recently talking about universal basic income. I am sensing a theme. You can talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us at TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And as always, we're in your favorite podcast player, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, doesn't matter. 
leave a rating, leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.